0: There are a couple of things I'd like to pick up on in this episode. As promised, I'm going to share a few thoughts around the state pension age and draw a couple of comparisons with the French system. I've also been looking at the government's response to the Work and Pensions Committee report on pension freedoms and what we can learn from it. And I'm going to pick up on comments from a couple of listeners who've written in, and thank you for those. I want to start with a reminder that politicians don't like taking things away from people once they've given them to them. Because people get used to them and then they get upset when they're taken back, even if they're sold as a temporary measure in the first place. A good example of this was the £20 temporary increase to universal credit, which the government made very clear from the outset was temporary, but still had to face a barrage of criticisms and complaints and people saying, no, let's let's make it permanent. And this doesn't bode well, I think, for the promise to funnel the hypothecated national insurance increase into long-term care in a couple of years' time. Because I think once the NHS has enlarged and absorbed the extra funding, like the um, like the blob in that 1950s movie, I, th- I think it'll be very hard for it to shrink again, for it to, for it to take anything back out again. It goes in, it just doesn't come out again. So there's that. Also, my thanks to Angela Rayner, who I met a couple of times in 2016, when she briefly worked on pensions under Jeremy Corbyn. I like Angela, in spite of her tribalism. And there's a lot of the tribalism about politics that I find pretty distasteful. I mean, she's certainly guilty of that from time to time. She referred a while ago to Tory scum, which I don't like. But I do like her as a person, partly because she just doesn't take crap from anybody. And I think the few occasions she's done PMQs, I think she did a pretty good job, and I think she's got a really strong attitude and she tries to get things done, and I think she's pretty widely liked across Parliament. Anyway, via the media, she introduced me this week to a fairly vulgar slang term, prefaced in her case by the adjective ginger, of which I was hitherto unaware. Politics is an education, it seems. So, in the spirit of education, I'm going to move on to the State Pension Review, conducted by Baroness Neville Rolfe, who I've never met. And so, it's going to look at a few things. It's going to look at intergenerational fairness, it's going to look at changes that have gone on in the nature of work, it's going to look at sustainability and affordability, and it's going to consider what metrics to take account of. And I think all of that's pretty interesting stuff and one of the things that's come out of the sort of call for evidence that I wasn't aware of maybe maybe you all were right so so forgive me if I've been slow on the uptake here but women's state pension age was lowered to 60 In nineteen forty. So originally women's state pension age was the same as men's, and then in nineteen forty, in recognition of the fact that many women were younger than their husbands, and also often spent much of their lives caring for elderly relatives, it was put down to sixty, so different to to men's state pension age. And then of course, a few decades later, we ran into all the problems of trying to put it back up again. So I want to throw across a few stats on the state pensions, just stay with me, because I because I think this is interesting. So the number of people of state pension age or over is expected to grow by 24% over the next 25 years. So it's going to go up from 12.1 million people in 2020 to 15.1 million people in 2047. So that's 25-year period, but that's still a pretty big expansion. And the number of people aged 85 years and over is expected to almost double over the next 25 years, rising from 1.7 million people in 2020 to 3.3 million people in 2047. And the increase in numbers of people above state pension age and the increasingly longer lives means that the number of pensioners per 1,000 working-age people is projected to rise from 284 pensioners per 1,000 working-age people in 2022 to 337 per 1,000 working-age people in 2047. So that's a pretty big increase. This is another one that interests me and I think is worth slightly counterintuitive. The average age that women exited the labour market in 1950 was 63.9 years. and then progressively fell until it reached its lowest point in 1986 at just over 60 years of age. So it had gone from nearly 64 to just over 60. And then it's increased again by 3.7 years, back up to 64 by 2020. And similar story for men, the average age of exit from the labour force in 1950 was 67.2 years. Now that fell, and by 1996 it had reached age 63, And then it's gone back up again so that by 2021 it had gone back up to 65. And I think that's all worth keeping in mind when you consider what the government's now trying to do with the state pension age. So... Cost is clearly a really important consideration on all of this. Forecasts show that state pension age expenditure is forecast to rise over the next 50 years, even with all the changes we've got baked in, and I'll come on to those in a moment. The most recent forecast from the OBR in summer 2020 shows that expenditure on state pensions is forecast to rise from 4.8% of GDP, to 6.2% in 204950. 50 Sorry, this is beginning to sound like a Gordon Brown budget now. I apologise for these numbers, but I think they're important. So it's going up from 4.8% of GDP to 6.2% of GDP. And that's just as we stand today. And that all comes in spite of increases in the state pension age. What were they? Well, 1995 Pensions Act, as we all know, legislated to equalise ages at 65 by 2020. And isn't it interesting that even with that massive head start of 15 years, legislation in 1995, but not starting until 2010, we still ended up with all the problems with the waspy women, about whom I have mixed feelings, right? So I understand, back to my earlier point, that when you take things away from people, they get upset. But I also think that there's little more going on than that. I think for a lot of these women they didn't have, I think, finely calibrated retirement plans built around being able to draw their state pension at age 60. I think at just kind of a fairly fundamental and emotional level, they got pretty hacked off when they suddenly found out they had to work for an extra five years and they didn't want to do that. And I I have sympathy with that, but that's different to someone who's made a, a detailed financial plan and who suddenly finds someone's moved the goalpost without telling them. Either way, the government definitely should have done more to communicate that earlier on. So then we get the 2011 Pensions Act brings forward the changes to the rise to 66 and then we get the 2014 Pensions Act which brought forward the move to 67 by 8 years to 2028. So that's kind of where we are now and the government's contemplating bringing forward the increase to age 68 and you know that feels like the direction of travel. And Steve Webb's spoken about this, and of course he's been an influential figure in, in the various changes that went on between 2010 and 2015. and you know he was pretty immersed in pensions even before he became pensions minister. So he knows what he's talking about. And he'd, 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 he's pushing this principle of you know through your adult life, you, you spend two-thirds of your adult life in work and you get one-third of your adult life in retirement. And I think I think that's interesting, um, but we shouldn't get too dogmatically tied in to the precise calculation of that. And I'll come back to that because I just wanted to then pick up on what the French are up to. And I noticed James Coney had tweeted a bit of bit of confusion about this, and yet James, I've been confused too, because if you look at a lot of reports around the state pension age in France, it says you have to wait until sixty-seven to get the full state pension. So then what was Macron doing, saying he was going to rise from 62 to 65? And my understanding is that 62 is the minimum age you can get your state pension in France unless you've got some other qualifying criteria. If you worked a really long time and you started really early, apparently you can get it a bit earlier still. But he wants to move that minimum starting age for state pension from 62 to 65. Except he's now said he's not going to do that because guess what? It upset people. So it's now expected they're going to stay at 62 while we're already at 66 and rapidly heading for 68 as quickly as we can decently get there. So whilst there are, there's a lot of sort of wrinkles and nuances on all this, it feels like the French are basically going to get to draw their pension earlier. And this is where it gets kind of interesting, because if you take the sort of principle of three pillars of pension, you've got the mandatory state pension, you've got a mandatory private pension where you have to pay money in, and then you get your voluntary private savings on top. So basically three pillars, as as sometimes referred to. In France, over 80% of pensioner income comes from that first pillar, that mandatory state pension. Whereas By comparison, in the UK, it's much lower at around only 50% of people's retirement income. So the state plays a much bigger role in people's retirement provision. And as I've already mentioned, the UK state spends around 5% of GDP on state pensions, whereas from what I've read, in France, it's a whopping 12%. So the French spend 12% of GDP on state pensions. That's a big slice of state spending. Um, It's also interesting to note the life expectancy is slightly higher in France than it is in the UK. So the average, uh, and, you know, except also there are different measures of life expectancy, but, you know, on a consistent measure, the the numbers I've looked at said France, the average is 82.9 years, whereas in the UK it's 81.3, and and you get similar gaps for for both for men and for women. And I think we can all agree that what that tells us is we need to double down on our consumption of French wine uh, in a bit to, to catch up with the French. What's also interesting is that the replacement rate, so when you look at average private sector earnings, in the UK, the pension system delivers around a 60% replacement rate. So as you move from work into retirement, your income drops by around 40%. Whereas in France, their replacement rate is nearly 75%. So... In a lot of ways, you know what you've got is f- the French have a Rolls-Royce state pension system. It's more expensive, it's more generous, it comes in earlier, people get higher pensions. And pension of poverty in France apparently is much lower than in the UK. But what was really interesting was when I looked at this Mercer's analysis of international pensions and, the, um, and they look at three measures of a pension system. They look at adequacy, sustainability... And integrity. And clearly, from an adequacy point of view, the French are way ahead of us in terms of their state pensions. And then it's interesting that the Mercer's report actually ranks the UK higher than France on their overall measure. So we get a B, while the French only get a C C+, which is nice, isn't it? So I haven't dug into the reasons why, but presumably a big reason why we, we score better than les Français, given that we've got lower overall Adequacy is perhaps we score better on sustainability, so I think that's interesting. So what I also think is kind of interesting when you just kind of take a step back and look at the bigger picture is is fertility rates in the UK, which we're just basically not making enough people because we're currently well below replacement rate, at around one point seven two per mother, and obviously you need slightly over two. To, to maintain the population growth and or maintain population stability. So it appears we're not making enough people in spite of the sort of Trojan efforts of people like our own, own dear Prime Minister. And indeed a former colleague of mine, good friend, who who seems to be doing his best to repopulate Bristol. So we've been importing people, mostly willingly, occasionally less so, but for now the population is growing. We're at sixty seven million now up apparently from 58 million in 1995 when the state pension increase was first legislated for, but growth is slowing down, and and this is this is down to to two factors: is the lower birth rate and also lower mortality improvements. And these lower mortality improvements are an argument why some people are saying that we shouldn't we shouldn't push the state pension ages up as quickly as we have. And a lot of these problems are are down to these this demographic bulge. And anyone who spent any time looking at the kind of population chart in the UK. You can see that huge spike after the Second World War. So, you know, arguably this is Adolf Hitler's fault. I actually think it's also von Bismarck's fault. So it's it's a, it's a Prussian rather than a German problem. And I think you can trace a lot of this back to the unification of Germany and the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 and, and the subsequent French determination to regain Alsace and Lorraine, which, of course, led to the First World War, which in turn led to the Second World War, which in turn led to the baby boom, the consequences of which we're still dealing with today. So I just kind of also wanted to go and consider the balance between pensioners and taxpayers. And and I was struck by the last spring statement that wasn't a budget, where all the tax rises were getting loaded onto the workers. And this, this kind of relationship between working age and the pensioner age. So... The Department for Work and Pensions is forecast to spend over 129 billion pounds on benefits for pensioners in 2021-22, and that includes the state pension, which is just over 100 billion. It's about 105 billion, and this is out of total government spending of just over a £1 trillion pounds, 1.053 billion, apparently. And alongside that, healthcare funding is also rising fast. And we've mentioned the NHS at the top of this and the increase in national insurance. So healthcare funding is going up to around £170 And then when you look at intergenerational foundation research on how the government spends its money one of the things comes out is that guess what? The government spends more money on pensioners than it does on others. So in 2018-19, which is going back a couple of years, but I think it's probably still, still worth noting, the government spent on average 14, a bit over £14,500 pounds on each child in that year. It spent a bit over £10,000 pounds on each working age adult, and it spent over £20,000 pounds on each pensioner, and this shouldn't come as any great surprise, but I think it does pose some interesting social contract issues because we're spending lots of money on older people and we're increasingly taking more money off young people and giving it to the older people at a time when the young people can't get on the housing ladder and are having to pay for their education. And I think things are getting a little bit stretched there. And just telling those 20-somethings, yeah, in, in another 50 years' time, your turn will come. Just be patient. You'll get your payout. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure that'll cut it. I mean, most 20-somethings, in my experience, can't see past the end of next week, let alone 50 years into the future. And that's perhaps not just unique to to the 20-somethings. So I think there are some really big kind of social contract issues there. And there's also this question of whether the state pension should reflect individuals' life expectancy. And we've talked already a bit about the fact that life expectancy improvements are slowing down. They're not quite where we thought they were from 2014. And, and if that's the case, well, should we just slow down state pension age increases? And, and then do you start individualizing it? Do you bring in postcoding or underwriting? And, and to me, that seems like a, a dangerous road to go down. I mean, the simplest mechanism by far for that would be just to pay men's, men's state pensions three years earlier than women because we know that's a really simple metric and men live less time than women. You could do it on postcode and say, well, people in Hull live not as long as people in, in Surrey uh, or, or in Dorset. But that all feels pretty divisive and would rapidly, I think, get pretty complicated. So I'm pretty uncomfortable with all of that. And certainly, you know, my default position would be have a state pension age that is universal for all. And in all of that, try and keep it as stable and as predictable as possible, because you can't keep bouncing this stuff around all the time. And I appreciate you've got to make changes. I do worry a bit about the way the economy is just kind of grinding to a halt a little bit. We went through the big banking crisis of 2008, took us several years to shrug that off. And and now look, we're, we're back in a hole again. And in the meantime, we've racked up a huge additional amount of state debt that's going to take a very long time to pay off, if, if we ever do. So in all of that, the challenge of how and when we pay people's state pensions given the sums of money involved and that question of stability for the long term is no simple question. But given that shift in emphasis between the younger working age cohorts and what a lot of people have experienced in older age. I, I find it quite hard to come to the conclusion the government's going to slow down significantly on all of this. But let's you know see what see what the report delivers. So I also wanted to pick up on the government's response, the government and the FCA's response to the Work and Pensions Committee report on pension freedoms. And I've got a few quick takeaways from that. And um, the government said no auto-enrollment into pension-wise. You know, I agree with them. I think it would be counterproductive. I think you'll just annoy a lot of people. I do think more people should use pension-wise. And I think how we get them there is absolutely up for grabs. I think there are lots of good ways we can do that. But just auto-enrolling them at the point of retirement is just going to antagonise people unnecessarily. I'm also delighted that the government rejected the committee's recommendation to decouple tax-free cash from the process of taking a pension, and it would have led to untold misery and confusion further down the line in terms of data management and tracking, and it might actually have encouraged earlier access to that pension commencement lump sum. So I wasn't involved in any of the lobbying around all of that, but I just want to say well played to whoever was and persuaded the government it was a bad idea. I'm also really interested that collective-defined contribution schemes get a strong look in, both from the committee and from the government, who it seems are a pretty enthusiastic supporter. And I expect to hear more on this in the future, particularly now on this concept of a decumulation CDC scheme. And, I mean, it will involve actuaries who we know are inherently suspect and unreliable characters. Nevertheless, I mean, that secret source of mortality credits and the managed rundown of capital which can potentially deliver better income rates than an annuity with lower risk levels than a drawdown, you know, I think is quite seductive and appealing. And you need to build up critical mass in the scheme so it might work best through a workplace environment. But if you can create a body of people who all buy into it and they all move their money in on mass. And, and so you get the whole scheme up and running and then you manage the retirement incomes. I, th- I think it will sell. I think for all that we love drawdown and, you know, annuities, I still think are a really good solution. And the idea of mix and matching those solutions, which also came up in the report, is, is a really sensible one. Some sort of retirement CDC scheme, I think, uh, has legs. So I I look forward to seeing more on that. And we're going to get a call for evidence in May on what decumulation support should be given to members of trust-based schemes and, in particular, whether the government should introduce retirement pathway investments for for trust-based schemes. Now, I refer my listeners to my rants in podcasts 21 and 22 regarding the lack of joined-upness between the FCA and the Pensions Regulator. The government's saying it won't make any decisions in this space until it's examined the evidence around what is out there and what might be needed. But I'd suggest this is one for the industry to get on top of, as, as it's likely to affect occupational pension schemes and their administrators and master trusts, and will also potentially have knock-on implications for contract-based providers, notwithstanding the, the lack of coherence sometimes between FCA and the pensions regulator. So there could be competition issues there as well, or it's simple questions of alignment of rule changes. And the DWP committee was also pushing for a drawdown charge cap for non-advised customers. So there's quite a lot in there. And it's not clear at the moment exactly where government and regulators will land on all of this. But it definitely feels like one to keep an eye on. On the pension advice allowance, that's the £500 that could be taken out to help pay for advice. The committee wants the limits increased, but the government's not showing much enthusiasm for this. So, again, if you think it's useful or important, then there's an argument for dropping a line to the DWP to make that case. On dashboards, the government confirmed there'll not be any transactional capability at the outset. They want to get the basics right and build trust. (laughs) And given the emerging uncertainties around schemes' ability to meet the data provision responsibilities on time, that seems like a pretty good decision. And just finally, on the push for enhanced guidance, which is something that the committee was pretty keen on, the FCA, in its response, pitched in promoting streamlined advice in the forms of either focused or, or simplified advice, and, and really poured pretty cold water on the idea of any kind of modification to to the guidance definition, sort of saying that this is primary legislation, we're not going to go there. The FCA claimed a willingness to work with firms to develop advisory services rather than showing any appetite for for, for rewriting the rules. And, well, yeah, okay, but I'm not sure that's the end of the matter. And I'd really like to hear what the Treasury has to say about it because that kind of largely falls with them. And just staying with the Treasury on pensions tax relief, on which I was musing a couple of weeks ago, Rory got in touch. Thank you, Rory. And we had a bit of a to and fro of, of emails. Um, so he said, look, the idea of focusing pension tax relief on the less wealthy is sensible. The issue is I see it would be public service DB schemes. Yeah, I agree with you. The government, he says, would need to close all these schemes and move workers into DC options in order to reduce their tax relief. The other option would be to leave public sector workers in their gold-plated schemes and reduce tax relief for private sector workers, increasing the current inequity. It seems to me, he says, that no meaningful reform is possible without upsetting the public sector and few governments would take the huge short-term pain needed. And he also says, look, any significant increase in tax on the wealthy could be coupled with a dramatic simplification of the rules on CGT inheritance tax and so on, resulting in a simpler tax system and higher revenue for the Treasury, which sounds great, and would perhaps sugar the pill for those who might save on lawyers, IFAs and accountants while paying more to the Treasury. Yeah. So I think there's a lot I agree with there. I think given the complexity of all of that and the risks to government, it sort of illustrates why the default strategy of muddling and tinkering is so much in favor at the Treasury, because any major cause, any major changes cause upheaval, distress, and losers as well as winners. So why would you pick that battle unless you really have to? And you can argue that they have to because there's tens of billions of pounds at stake. But as we found out in the COVID crisis, if you suddenly want to expand the state and throw huge sums of money at a problem, when you really want to, you can. And all of a sudden, the significance of that pension tax relief, those tens of billions of pounds, sort of diminishes a little bit. It'll be really interesting to see what happens next. For me, it feels like the political cycle just isn't in a space of either picking arguments, <laughs> not picking arguments with the public sector unions again, or indeed of anything that smacks at all of austerity. So I also had a couple of exchanges of messages with Andrew, and thanks thanks for your email. And I just want to pick out a couple of points. So Andrew says, I feel we're likely to find, so you're talking about auto enrollment here, I, f- I feel we are likely to find that auto enrollment and freedoms just didn't work for lower lower middle income people. Canada came up with a different solution to the problem of such people and went for higher state pensions. And the US has always had the sort of higher replacement rate for lower paid social security members. So I still hanker after that. Uh, yeah. And, and just coming back to my earlier comments about the state pension, I increasingly, I, I agree with you. I think DB worked for low earners who stayed in one job and you who know, very helpfully also tended not to live very long In retirement, and now we have fragmented employment patterns, you know, women in the workforce and current solutions aren't really working quite so well. So I get the fact that pension freedoms work really well for a lot of people, but they don't work for everybody. And I've been doing a lot of work recently around equity release, and that's brought home to me just how much has changed in the last 20 years, not just on pensions, but also on really important social policy areas like housing and education. So I'm increasingly of the opinion that the only realistic answer is a more generous state pension. And I think it's interesting, we've we've accepted in the last couple of years that massively expanded state, but not for pensions. I think Steve Webb was right to hang on to the triple lock, something I, I've not always agreed with. So, you know, I've changed my view on that. And you can argue the money's well wasted on wealthy pensioners. And, you know, we could means test it, but I'd be really lucked, reluctant to see that happen as well. Means testing was the solution of choice under Gordon Brown at the Treasury, and it actually resulted in a huge waste of resources. And then look at the problems the DWP is still experiencing today in trying to give away pensions credit. So I would argue to increase the state pension and recoup the money from wealthy pensioners through the tax system. You know, and as part of that, I'd argue for increased imposition of national insurance on those working past state pension age. And then there was a logic that you stopped paying national insurance when you got to state pension age, but it's increasingly hard to justify that as the link between national insurance and benefits has, has fragmented more and more in recent years. With the threshold now up alongside income tax allowance, to me, this increasingly feels like a no-brainer. And Andrew, thanks also for your comments around the regulatory architecture, uh, which I was ranting about as well in a previous podcast, uh, including your, your scurrilous gossip around HMRC's incompetence at a pivotal moment, which, which I won't read out in case it's true. I appreciate your overarching sentiment, which I think I can paraphrase as, yes, it's a bit of a mess. There are lots of ways it could be tidied up, including bringing the PPF into the equation. But getting any momentum going on it will be hard. Probably not as hard as pension tax reform, though, but definitely not simple. So I think all of that's kind of interesting, and I think we'll probably just stick with the strategy of muddling and tinkering for a while yet. So there you go. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and maybe even leave a positive review. And if you've anything to say about the things I've talked about here, do get in touch.